VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, August the 25th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a call to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, it's been a great summer of baseball, and you hear Brian Medora comment during the weather and the newscast that this might be one of the best weather summers, certainly in recent memory for me, even go back to this June, when it was sunny and warm for the most part, compared to some of the past Junes, which people affectionately refer to as January, so it's been great summer not over yet uh so in baseball good luck safe travels to the under 13s under 15s under 16s all on their way to the baseball nationals actually i think they're on the ground where they're playing good luck at the nationals and of course in the under 16 ranks jada lead we take them out after her extraordinary summer great stuff and also they've secured the under 15 fast pitch uh, easterns down at parcel cove so that's coming up to terrific stuff there now we know that the province has brought forward this physical activity tax credit of up to two thousand dollars but of course if you don't have the money to get involved in organized sports the tax credit is maybe just dangled out there still out of your reach and beyond just that $2,000 and the inability for all children who would like to play sports, now we know there's great programs out there, like the Breakaway Foundation and Kids Sport and others, that are doing their level best to ensure that everyone who wants to play can play. Also, requires some gear depending on the sport you're playing. So there's a terrific program here in the province called the Real Program. It got some attention earlier this week because the, the folks on the Shamrock City, Barry Merlin Walsh and uh, Mr. Quinlan and others made a big donation to the Real Program. Alex Nuhu got a lot of stuff going on. We saw donations going to the Real Program. And they've got a big gear drive coming up this Saturday at the YMCA on Ridge Road from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. So all of your gently used sports equipment and anyone involved in sports, minor or amateur, with children in particular, you've got some gear kicking around the house. Let's find a home for it. So here's the needed equipment. All sizes, youth to senior. Soccer shin guards and cleats. Goalie equipment, hockey helmets. Now, of course, they have to be CSA approved, not expired. So your old Wayne Gretzky Jova, no good. Elbow pads, neck guards, shin guards, chest protectors, skates, gloves, sticks. Also, figure skates, baseball cleats, and jazz and ballet shoes. Doesn't mention tap. But jazz and ballet shoes they're looking for. So that's this Saturday from 10 to 2 at the YMCA on Ridge Road here in St. John's in the lower parking lot. Please do have a look around the house, around the shed, see if you have any of that type of gear kicking around. Oh, and in the world of baseball, I mean, it's the 75th anniversary of minor baseball in St. John's. They're celebrating and using their new clubhouse out in Cornerbrook. And we all know the story surrounding Jada Lee and her historic appearance at the Canada Summer Games. So it's been great. You want to bring some more athletics into it? or anything else you want to shine a spotlight on good things happening where you live, sports or otherwise. Let's do it here today. Interesting one today in history. I don't know if you're a motorsports fan. There is a, a fairly quiet, well, pardon me, maybe a relatively small, but boisterous motorsports uh, fan clubs right around the province. And on this one, this is F1, Formula One, the pinnacle of motorsports, although MotoGP is right there too. So it's today in 1991, that the great German Michael Schumacher made his F1 debut at the Circuit de Spa Francorchamps in Belgium, Belgium for the Belgian Grand Prix. 
So we didn't win that day, but Schumacher, one of my favorites of all time, of course, certainly behind the wheel of the Ferrari all those years, he won 91 Grand Prix over the course of his legendary career, seven-time world champion, and of course, the skiing accident that has taken him out of the spotlight and made him, you know, what was such a charismatic, larger-than-life character has been so crippled since that horrid skiing accident, but now his son Mick is out on the Formula One circuit racing as well. This year for Hospital remains to be seen what his future holds. Curiously, the F1 calendar picks up after their summer break this weekend in Spa, and Schumacher made his debut in 1991. Okay, back to school. Hate to do it, got to do it. So classes are back on the 7th of September. So there's a bunch of questions. You know, preparedness is always important. So we wonder where we are with merging the Newfoundland and Labrador English-speaking school district into the department and what that will actually mean and what it will look like. Also, there's the annual late-in-the-day 11th hour trying to make sure that all the teaching positions are filled. There's teaching shortages. We've long understood the substitute teacher shortage and some of the disconnect with even the compilation of the substitute teacher lists. But, you know, we've got to ensure, even though, yes, inside of their collective agreement and the rank of seniority, people will get bumped when people see, you know, other positions that are more favorable, whether it be at a different school or a different position or a different community. So that happens. But let's see how quickly we can have all the teaching positions filled and all the teachers in place for day number one. There's also going to be the annual event of if you have a child that requires some additional supports, whatever form they may come in. If you were in grade four and needed those supports, it didn't go away in grade five. So we just need to uh, ensure that as best possible, those students who need those supports and the schools understand them, let's make sure they're in place. Also, we know that there's not going to be any mandatory masks in the K-12 system this year, and that the 30-school pilot project for pre-kindergarten is going to be part of the conversation. There's also going to be what is becoming a huge issue, and it always happens. But here we are at this point of the summer, the scramble for daycare. Not just by placement in one of the 30 schools with the pilot program for K-12, to or pardon me, pre-K, at $15 a day, but just even just to get infant care in particular, extremely difficult. So where does that put the family? You start making hard choices about maybe having to take some vacation time, maybe taking a leave of absence from your job because not everyone has Nan and Pop to turn to or some other trusted friend or family member who can perform that critically important role of taking care of your child. So we look forward to the $10 a day and early childhood educators in place, properly trained, paid properly as well. But if you're one of those families scrambling for child care, in particular infant care, we'd like to hear from you and where you are in the province today and what you're facing. Also in the schools, I see people talking about this a little bit more than they have in the past, but it's just the unbelievable prevalence of the vapes, the vaping products in schools, notably in junior high and high school. So sometimes we hear that, you know, the administrators or teachers are talking about and with the students who are indeed vaping, and maybe they'll be told, hey, my mom and dad are okay with it, so butt out bought out. So the vaping issue. And also I read a story this morning about edibles. So it doesn't matter whether or not they're legalized for children. We know that they come in many shapes that are attractive to children, whether it be a gummy bear or otherwise. There's a report that's just been done by Ontario-based researchers about edibles and children. 
So in three provinces where it has been legalized, Alberta, BC, and Ontario, and they did all the comparisons to the province of Quebec where it is not legalized. So they're looking at pediatric hospitalizations. And again, it might not be a big deal, but even if one or two children are hospitalized because of what they refer to as cannabis poisonings because of the consumption of the edible, then it's worth having that conversation. And for children to be aware of what they're looking at, what they're eating, and what it actually means once once it enters their system, pardon me. So for adults, you know, unlike when you smoke cannabis, you get a pretty immediate reaction, not like the edible, which has a delayed reaction. So you have to understand that and be careful with that. And I'm bringing it up for a specific purpose because there are indeed a lot of these products out there. They seem and look quite innocuous, but they can be quite powerful, even if you're talking about 10 milligrams of the psychoactive compound, which is THC. So adults, you can get drowsy, you know, maybe hungry, but for children, the possibility to get very, very sick. So these researchers, they looked at three different uh, moments in time. Before legalization of cannabis in Canada, between January 15 and September 18, after cannabis first became legal, October 18 to December 19, and after the legalization of edibles from January 2020 to 2021. Each year, the numbers grew, began at 5.2% on the average hospitalizations per month, all the way now to 14.9 where these edibles have been legalized. So whether or not they're legal, whether or not they're legal for one age group or another, the fact of the matter is they're out there. And when we hope for the best and turn our backs to some of these potential problems, so just, you know, speaking about the vapes, and it's not me telling you how to parent because, I mean, there's no textbook, right? But those types of conversations, and, you know, some people still think if we talk about it, whether it be sex or drugs, that immediately that will open their eyes to it, and they'll all of a sudden experiment where they might not have if we had not broached it as parents or caregivers, when in fact that's not really true, right, and that's not what happens. So between the vapes and the edibles, I thought I'd throw it out there because, you know, that's part of what's out there. It's part of what's out there in the playground and down at the rock at 3 o'clock, so we've got to understand what's happening. All right. This story here is sickening. And it happens far too often. We've talked with people from Seniors NL and the Seniors Advocate over the years about the different types of elder abuse, whether it be mental, emotional, physical, and yes, financial. This story I first saw reported on CBC, and it was about a lady named Lillian Tomey. And her husband passed away a few years ago, and she turned to her once trusted caregivers, her daughter and her son-in-law. Jackie Pottister and husband Christopher Pottister. So Miss Toomey had been hospitalized a couple of times, and during her hospitalizations, she had indeed sold her home to her once trusted caregivers for a dollar in exchange for daycare, or for pardon me, for care. And so they took advantage of her, whether it be with her debit card that they were given to take care of some of the ongoing bills that she would have to pay, then the line of credit decimated. So. She is shocked. She can't believe it. And I imagine she must be absolutely devastated. And the family now torn apart, and an elderly lady left with what she thought might be enough to be comfortable and to pay her bills has now been bilked from her. Disgraceful. And it happens far too often. And 99 times out of 100, it's a family member. So looking for some advice, whether it be turned to a great resource at a Seniors NL, to look for what kind of protections and advice they can give you to shield yourself from this. It doesn't automatically build in that you can't trust anybody, but you sure have to be wary. 
You don't know what might be going on in other people's lives, checking savings accounts, when they look at your bank balance. And even though they, quote unquote, love you, the next thing you know, when you're looking to see how you can pay your bills, looking for a bank balance update upon being discharged from the hospital and to find out that the money is gone. Certainly a lot of it. She filed a statement to claim the judge understood and offered her the maximum amount in an, uh, an award. Oh, my. Anyway, so that story, I just think if we want to take it all in, be all-encompassing regarding the protection, the dignity, and the safety of the province of seniors, we can't be afraid to talk about some of those darker corners. And, yes, the different forms that it comes in, from financial to physical, emotional, and mental, is just truly an amazing and disgraceful story. But it happens. And I think the more we talk about it and shine light on it and offer some seniors and their families advice how to protect their loved ones, then hopefully we can make a little difference on that front and curb it from happening as frequently as it does. You want to take that on? Difficult one, but let's do it. Okay. Update coming from Central Health and their CEO, Andre Robichaud. Uh, just a quick question. I should have verified this, but is Ms. Robichaud living in the province or still in New Brunswick? Just wondering aloud. If you're in Central, let me know. So this is about reviewing about 3,000 patients' mammogram, mammogram results. It's obviously troubling. There have been some errors identified. The other three regional health authorities are looking at their preliminary investigation as to what might be happening inside their RHA. So, of course, it's bad enough that the errors were made. And it's a technical issue regarding the number of pixels in their monitoring equipment. It's not about the tests themselves. It's about the review of. So the standard is five megapixels. And out they have six that do indeed have the five megapixels, but three that only have three megapixels. And the question would be, I think beyond the anxiety faced by these up to 3,000 patients as to whether or not they were given accurate results, is there's an annual audit done. At Central Health, Western Health, Labrador, Grenfell, and of course at Eastern Health. And the annual audit is to pick up on a variety of things, to flag a variety of things. But in this case, they missed it. They did not identify the fact that they had three other nine monitors that were not up to the technical standards. How can that possibly be? It's well documented in the Canada's Health Canada Safety Code and the Canadian Association of Radiologists guidelines, and it was missed for three years. Does that pose a different and larger question about the process now that's been undertaken to merge all of the four regional health authorities into one? Does it become an unwieldy behemoth where things like this might be more commonplace? It can be managed. Not to say that we certainly can't have one regional health, one health authority to deal with the entirety of the province, but I'll just put that out there. But they, that's a real glaring shortcoming. Three annual audits did not pick up on this particular issue guidelines that are well documented and should be well understood so if you're one of those patients or you'd like to talk about it from any angle we are happy to take it on today and of course it really does i would think immediately for many people bring us back to the cameron inquiry and the shoddy laboratory work practically practically non-existent quality controls that led to some 400 breast cancer patients getting incorrect hormone receptor tests or test results pardon me Okay, so what else have we got here? And, you know, inside the merge, the regional health authorities, not only how it's going to look, how many jobs may be lost, because obviously there's going to be some redundancies that will be identified, but where will the jobs be? It will not be accepted by people of the province if all of a sudden the hub, the vast majority of the jobs in regional health are in town. 
You know, the importance of being able to have an office locally, I would think especially in Labrador Grenfell. That's going to be one of the questions that are ongoing. You want to take it on? Let's do it. I see there's someone in the queue that already wants to talk about green hydrogen, and I'm glad. It might be the boon that people are looking forward to and needing in their region, but the ambitious timelines associated with this declaration of intent or memorandums of understanding still put a lot of questions on the forefront. You know? And if you want to pose any of them, I've tried to pose them over the last number of days, but certainly, especially if you're in one of the regions that has one of these proposals, whether it be Port-a-Port, and there's one in Argentia, and people wonder why there aren't any, as we know of, as of yet, and the Great Northern Peninsula, Labrador, and otherwise, but we can take that on. Okay, let's stick with Labrador. So, the other memorandum of understanding, some between the country and the automakers, the, some of the biggest in the world, Mercedes-Benz and Volkswagen, looking for access to critical minerals and to supply, a, uh, to secure a supply chain. Okay. There's lots of implications when it comes for getting the tax credits, or pardon me, the rebates. No, it's a tax credit from the United States up to $7,500, uh, $7, which means that they had to source most of the critical minerals and, and battery materials from countries with a free trade agreement in place with the United States, including us. So the critical minerals include graphite, cobalt, nickel, lithium, primarily found in northern Ontario and northern Quebec. Also found here. So all of these moves forward, whether or not you're in or out on electric vehicles, is kind of beside the point here. If there are businesses that would like to do business with Canada and access to resources, and we can be primary beneficiaries and see all the economic upside with all of the attention required for the environment, but where do we stand? in Labrador with this particular deal. We know that Valet has signed a deal with North Volt AB. They deal with companies like Tesla for these critical minerals, but they really do just talk about Northern Quebec and Northern Ontario in this particular MOU. Sticking with Labrador. So Minister Anita Anand, Defense Minister, was in Labrador and confirmed that Five Wing Goose Bay will indeed be one of the four northern locations getting base upgrades as part of Canada's NORAD modernization plan. Good. Creation of jobs, and of course, Five Wing Goose has long been in the news and needing for an injection of cash, occupants, and enthusiasm in jobs. What was not committed to by the minister was any enhancement for search and rescue capacity in Labrador, specifically air. I spoke to Minister Bill Blair on the show about it. I mean, he's the Minister of Emergency Preparedness, but preparing for an emergency also includes attention to search and rescue. There's not even a fast... A, a, what do they call it? A fast rescue watercraft? I think that's the, the phrase. But the minister wouldn't commit to any enhancement of air search and rescue in Labrador. We all know the stories. We all know the lack of capacity and resources in Labrador for search and rescue. So it's fine that there's an investment of five-wing goose. That's a good thing. But no attention to any additional enhancement of air search and rescue. In that part of the province, you want to take it on, we can do it. And for your information... Yesterday, in the update of the COVID hub, four additional COVID-related deaths have been reported. People will continue to clamor for vaccination status, comorbidities, and otherwise. But that's 225 people total. 20 deaths so far in the month of August. There was only 11 in July, 12 in June. Hospitalizations have dropped. I suppose maybe directly related to the number of deaths. There's 14 in hospital. We wish them speedy recovery. One of those in critical care. And it's not gone away. Not to be fearful, to be mindful. 
We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's get a tune going before we come back and speak with you. It was today in 1958. Big jump on the Billboard charts from 17 to 3. The Everly Brothers. The Bird Dog. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin on line number two. Morning, George. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Great, sir. How you doing? I bet. I bet. Listen, uh, i got to chime in on that uh, hydro uh, proposal they had over our or proposing for the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, fresh drinking water is going to be the most priciest commodity on this earth in the next 20, 25 years. And here they are proposing to turn fresh drinking water into hydrogen. Well, to use it in in the process of electrolysis, that's right. And and after that process is, is finished, what are they going to do with it? It won't be fit to use. Same as Fort McMurray and the oil sands up there. Well, I mean, what do you understand the implications of the freshwater being used? I know that there's some atoms split inside the electrolysis process, but what do you think becomes of the water? Well, that's another thing. What becomes of the water? Is it going to be fit to use without a hydrogen atom? I doubt it. I doubt it. It's going to be fit to use. So here they are going to uh, reduce hundreds of millions of gallons of clean, fresh drinking water into a, a fuel, and 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 the uh, and the uh, uh, the process is going to take away uh, uh, the the most precious commodity on this earth as of right now, Patty, you know that. But it doesn't mean that the water is all of a sudden can't be used for anything because you don't need potable water for a variety of things like if we just say irrigation, for instance. So I don't know what the capture looks like, but I don't know if you listen to the show, you've heard me many, many times ask the question about water. How much, what becomes of it? How is it stored afterwards? Is it just poured into the ocean? Is it like what happens? I don't know. So that's one of the things that we're trying to uh, cover when we try to get Mr. Risley in particular on, even though I'm kind of torn as to whether or not John Risley is the right guest as opposed to an expert in the process, because they have a business agenda. It'd be nice to just get the understanding of the process versus what the business thinks of the process. So those are questions that I'm trying to get answers to, but I don't know exactly what becomes of the the water after the process has been utilized in the creation of this green energy, but. Your opening statement is right. One of the most precious commodities on the face of the earth is if it's not already, it soon will be, and that's fresh drinking water. No question, obviously. No no question about it. No question about it. I mean, and you see the effects of climate change that happened here in Newfoundland over the last two or three years. I mean, uh, Premier Fury flew over a bog that was on fire, Patty. Now, you know you can't set fire to a wet sponge. But obviously it's happening because everything is drying out. People's wells are going dry. Uh, rivers in China, they're rationing water everywhere. I mean, it's just ridiculous the amount of water we're wasting. And here they are going to turn around and waste another millions and millions of gallons of fresh water when two-thirds of the earth is covered in salt water. There's processes out there to use salt water, but of course, they already refer to green hydrogen as one of the most expensive processes, like gray utilizes natural gas, which is another conversation I think we should be having is about how do we utilize Canada's natural gas and get it to market, you know, liquefied, of course, but anyway, I'll try to get someone who knows way more about it than me to come on the program to talk about when you split water molecules into oxygen and hydrogen gases, 
what becomes of the water? Is it all of a sudden no, there is no water, or is it simply the nu- nutrients have been split and consequently not fresh, drinkable, potable? Like I don't know. I honestly do not know. But of course, yeah. it won't be there for drinking after this particular process. Well, that's what I'm thinking, and, and like you said, with uh, and the people on the port of port and the government should all be aware that uh, we got lots of salt water they could use. That process apparently is so expensive, that's why nobody uses it. Hey, well, I mean, listen, uh, you run out of drinking water, what happens, Patty? We all die, don't we? Yeah, no do water, we, we're going to die. Are eh? we actually at risk of that in this province? I, I don't think so, but of course we don't know exactly how much water will be used. And here's from this uh, lady, Liz. When you separate the hydrogen from the oxygen and put the hydrogen into the ammonia, the original water, H2O, no longer exists. Th- that's right. But what that means at the tap, the spigot at the end of the plant, does that mean only air comes out or nothing comes out or something comes out or what it is, what it could be used for? I don't know. Which are questions which I'm trying to answer because I don't pretend to know anything about the process no, itself. I, I, I don't either, but I can't see them processing clean, fresh water, turn it into hydrogen, and having a product come out the other end that you're going to burn or you're going to use as an energy source. What's left over? Nothing. Fair question, George. Uh, George, yeah. You know, the other, the gray, the blue, the green, there is a different cost associated with it. There's a different amount of uh, emissions that come with all. You know, when you use natural gas in part of the creation of gray hydrogen, has more emissions than when you use water and electrolysis for green hydrogen, of course, and the shipment using ammonia. But these are all fair ball questions that I think people mm-hmm. deserve an answer to. Fresh water, I mean, they keep saying the same things, right? You know, we have an abundance of wind fine we're not going to run out of wind you know the wind is going to be blowing and blown at infinitum that's right but the patty i'm living in gander and i can look at gander lake and i've been living here pretty well all my life and i've never seen gander lake and gander lake is 25 miles long and four or five miles wide sure and 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 as deep as an ocean and i've never seen gander lake as slow as it's been the last three or four years ever in my life so water is running away at a fast pace and then we're using it and abusing it on top of that so to take away fresh water from humanity is ridiculous now salt water is going up so if those people want to turn water into hydrogen fuel for germany or any place else well listen it might be more expensive but that's the way to go, as far as I'm concerned. And the people on the port of port should be aware that, that that's that's what should be done. That's the way to go if any company chooses to pursue it. Because it just adds to the question regarding how much it will cost this particular group to produce the product and then to transport it to their market, which seems, obviously, given the deal or the MOU or Joint Declaration of Intent that was signed as Germany, you know, how can that be the most cost-effective play with Germany so close to, say, the Nordic countries? There's a lot of things here that I'm still pretty confused about. I'm trying not to be just, uh, you know, negative Nelly about everything involved with this, but when we don't have answers to some of the fundamental questions or we don't have a clearer understanding of them, it just kind of leaves people scratching their head a little bit. I would imagine there's folks in Port-a-Port today who say, I don't want to see a single wind turbine. And their neighbor might be saying, we need the jobs. And someone down the road is asking the question about the fresh water. Someone else is asking the question about, you know, protections associated with a pneumonia plant or what have you. There's a lot of different I- issues that still need to be fully broached. Then add into it the ambitious timeline here of shipping by 2024 with a project that's not even approved uh-huh. kind of is just all mm-hmm. odd. It might be great, yeah, but... Weird. 
boy, there's a lot of boxes that have to be checked. I appreciate the time, George. Anything else this morning? Yeah, well, and we can pollute the air with more carbon, or we can suck up all our fresh water and use that to run everything. So we're trading off one against the other. I don't think it's a big, is a good trade off. Is all I'm saying. Appreciate the time, George. Thanks for the call. All right, thanks, Patty. All the best. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. bye bye. Uh, Glenn points out fresh water is already running into the ocean. Yeah. We know that, but that's, you know, the natural balance of the ecosystem is, he's right. But that doesn't necessarily equate to what would be how some of these processes would use fresh water. That's all. Yes, there's all kinds of fresh water running into the salt water. Of course there is. But that natural occurrence versus what would be an unnatural occurrence, and whether or not includes dams and how they actually get all the water required to the processing facility i mean i don't know if you know please fill me in let's take a break when we come back tons of time for you don't go away weekdays on vocm it's open line with your host patty daly join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m to noon on your vocm we get people talking welcome back to the show let's go oh here's one for folks who bemoan the loss of a train service here in the province Germany inaugurates the world's first hydrogen-powered train fleet. Ay, ay, ay. That might be where some of our hydrogen goes. Let's go line three. Harry, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Hey, How Harry. You? Great today. You? Can you hear me okay? Yeah. That's too bad. Come on. But I don't want to turn it off. <laughs> go ahead. Okay. Uh, in your preamble there, you talked about edibles, and I just want to relate a story, if you don't mind. Um... Okay, we're a nanny and puppy, and we take care of our grandson every now and again. And we have a very safe home. We make sure 100%. But anyway, uh, through the jigs and the reels, somehow, some edibles got in our house. We, nanny and puppy, don't do edibles, but I'm suffering a a spinal cord injury. And uh, a friend said this might help. Now... I was not aware this entered our house. It was in a package called um, Chips Ahoy. It looked identical to Chips Ahoy. You're familiar with the little chippies? I'm familiar with that cookie. Yeah. So anyway, somehow that ended up in our pantry, which the kids love to visit. (laughs) We always have treats for them. Mm Mm-hmm. So this particular morning, I was tasked to, not tasked, that's the wrong word, pleasured uh, to take care of my little grandson. And after his breakfast, he said, Poppy, I want a treat. And he went to the snack. But lo and behold, I said, uh, do you want some little fishies? No. Do you want some animal crackers? No. But right in front of his eyes was this package of Trips Ahoy, which... I didn't know soy uh, because we don't do that. But anyway, he ended up eating a cookie. And what, what it, happened? It happened. He fell asleep on his normal nap time. And when his father got off of work, he came to pick him up and he said, Oh my God, Dad, uh, what's up? With, oh, don't want to say the name. What's, what's up with my boy? I said, Oh, he just went to sleep like normal. I gave him his dinner and stuff. Anyway, oh, he said, did you give him anything, Dad, this morning? I said, well, he had a cookie. Now the package was in the garbage. 
So we went to investigate, took the package out, drips off the way. Oh, my good grief. To the hospital he goes. Mm-hmm. I, said, I said, my boy, we got to get, because we didn't know what the effects would be. So well, I guess, the, the well, anyway, he spent the night in the hospital. Oh, dear God. We were on edge. Stomach rotted. He turned out okay. Thank Lee. Oh, my good gracious. But the point of my call, uh, because your preamble kind of uh, spurred this, is that you can never be too careful. These packaging is ridiculous. It looked identical to what a cookie would be. It was powerful stuff once we read the label. Like, again, we don't do that, but it ended up in our house, and we didn't know. And all of a sudden, it ended up into the snack place. It's what happens. These are unintentional uh, ingestions, and the outcomes have been varied. In that report I referred to, there was no reference to any child having died, but they did speak clearly to the hospitalizations and some things to keep an eye on. And I'll put some of them out there for others who are listening to this story, and then we'll continue with your specific event. So the common symptoms that you should look for... Vomiting, drowsiness, increased heart rate, trouble breathing, anxiety, agitation. If you think there's any potential for cannabis poisoning and you see any or all of those symptoms, straight to the hospital you have to go. So just for information for folks listening to the show, you have no idea how a package of edible cookies made it into your house? No idea because we uh, we don't Remarkable. Uh, And it ended up into the pantry with the treats. I had no. I tell you what, I'm. I'm still. I'm so. I'm really embarrassed, even to, because we have such a safe. I'm a first responder. I, thirty years into it, <laughs> I help people. This was crazy. Like Patty, you don't know how this is eating me. And this happened in the spring, and I still have nights I cannot get past it. You know what I mean? Like if I hurt my grandson, oh. You wouldn't be able to live with yourself. I know where you're coming from. Same way I feel about even my own children or any of my my nephews, for instance. Of course you feel that way, Harry. But hopefully you can find a way to get past something. Because as a conscientious, loving nan and pop, making the place child-proof and all the proper handles on the doors and all of that stuff, you're doing what you can. We do. You wouldn't. Well, we're model grandparents, if you want to call it. But it can happen. And that's what I want to put out. You can't be too safe. Now, I can't even... I'm almost crying. His mother won't even let me take care of him by myself anymore. She don't trust me. Can you imagine? But it's it's not... Well, as long as the little boy is safe, that's all I care about. I understand. Anyway, it can happen. Well, let's make sure it don't happen, I suppose. I don't know, but it, it somehow it happened in our house and... And again, that's embarrassing to me. (laughs) Well, you know what? You might have helped someone by talking about it this morning, Harry. So I get how you feel. And hopefully you and the mother and everyone will find a way to grow past it because you love that child and that child loves you. And, you know, 
talking about we can sometimes be as safe as we want. You know, there's a difference between being safe and keeping like the the laundry detergent pods out of reach and the, all the things with the <laughs> childproof uh, lids and uh, tops on them. That's all important stuff. But you know, we also when we talk about safety, bubble wrapping our children also comes with a downside too. So there's a difference between you won't let them go on a seesaw versus trying to protect them from a laundry a Tide Pod or whatever they call those things. So Harry, I hope everything comes around, and we're so pleased to know that the child is okay and of course you love them and want to do anything you can to protect them so hopefully your story now will just give people uh, that one little quick look around the house to make sure some of those things are out of reach you know some of the things that we might keep under the sink for cleaners and whatnot but you never know who's going to open the, that uh, particular cupboard and take something out things that are everyday occurrences that mom and dad and nan and pop know how to treat them the little fart running around the house maybe doesn't so you know just have a little look around make sure you're as safe as you hope to be because everyone wants to have that environment that is as safe as possible for whether it be our own children and for sure our grandchildren. Uh, Harry, thanks for sharing the story this morning. Uh, Nice to talk to you, Patty. And just one, uh, yes, you had some very good points there to to end off. And uh, the love of a grandchild is, (laughs) there's nothing like it. I hope to experience it someday, Harry, I have to say. Oh, no, we had him the last two nights. I got to throw that in. Great. His dad is away at work, and his mother's working hard, so we had him, and we cherish him. Oh. How many How many grandchildren do you have? Two. One in Holyrood, and one in here in St. George's. Oh. That's okay. You're not giving anything away by saying St. John's or St. George's or Holyrood, pardon me. Yeah, my mother uh, has eight grandchildren, eight boys, wow. all boys. Yeah, our little boys, too. Terrific. We have one uh, niece and one grandniece, I guess you call it, out of a pile. <laughs> Good to have you on. Great, great talking to you, Patty. Thanks, Harry. All the best. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, see, there you go. I, mean, look, I don't know if I should be saying anything in that conversation with Harry, but, you know, people do what they can to protect your child, and you never want to be that person that, you know, inadvertently left something on the counter within reach that ended up in the belly, the child's belly, and the next thing you know, you're rushing into the Janeway. And, you know, there's a difference between trying to make the house safe versus out in the park. And you know it yourself. You know, sometimes the one little bit of dirt that ends up on a face requires a, 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 an, oh, I almost said a arse swipe, but one of those baby wipes. Everything's so clean. Everyone's so sterilized. And, you know, you can't get on the seesaw and you can't go on the slide and you can't get on the swing and you can't throw a rock in the pond. And, you know, some of that stuff is vastly different conversation than some of the protections that we all try to put in place in the home, right? And it's hard to be perfect. And it's hard to know what looks like an innocuous object or product, but might indeed cause a potential problem. So Harry's story, maybe is gonna be helpful. Just have that one little look around. You know, I've got little nephews, little tiny ones. I don't know if Sam my, is the youngest, and uh, he's like four. F- four, yeah, maybe going on five. Jeez, I should know. But anyway, you know, even when he comes down around the house, just, little things you never know what might pop up uh let's go ahead and take a break when we come back marie wants to talk about the ladies in surgery pamela also wants to talk about the hydrogen related matters and then we're speaking with you don't go away welcome back to the program let's go to line number one marie you're on the air hi patty hi i am I'm, I'm broken hearted today and i tell you what i i i'm reaching out for your help in this situation i have a sister and she's been in racks of pain for 19 months. 
and I mean racks of pain. She 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 can't she can't move without the pain. Uh, she she can't get into her bed without the pain. She's up all night crying because of the pain. And uh, I don't understand our system, how cruel it can be, because I am brokenhearted today because of what's going on for my sister. You've got a system today which is cold-hearted. There's no way to contact your doctor today. There's no way to contact a surgeon today. There's no way to contact anybody today when it comes to your health care. We are living in a, in, in a time where it's all done with an answering machine, which doesn't answer anything. There's nobody on the other end, I'm sorry to say. My sister, I, I, if it was me, I think I would have went out and done away with myself. Well, I've done away with myself because of the pain that. that she's in. But yeah. you know, it's true, Patty. It's true. Because I find that the system has been so cold to my sister and her problem. She has three discs out in her back, on her, in her lower back. Plus, she got two discs and the upper back. She is supposed she was now these discs are pressing against the nerve. I don't know what kind of damage is done to my sister's back because of this this has been going on for nineteen months, cutting into her nerves. She's to the point now she can't uh, mobilize at all. She can't because of the pain she's in. She's off her feet completely. She's in she she can't even take a bath, you know, because of the wrecks of pain she's in. And I don't understand the system. I don't know what our people are doing in government. I, uh, we're supposed to have a health minister. We're supposed to have uh, him looking out for, 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 for Canadians and their, and their care. And it's all falling on deaf ears on all sides. And I find it so cold, so cold and hard-hearted on the part of our government and the part of our health care, our doctors, our, our surgeons, I find it so cold that they can't take the time to pick up a phone and answer a person's need. This is where we're to today, Patty. And, and, and I, I, I'm reaching out to you today to see if you can do anything for my sister. I can't. I wish I could. You know, there's things that we can do around here. There's things we can attempt to do and to try to get some people some relief and some help and whatever, but inside the churn of healthcare. And you know, it's probably a good thing that I can't do anything about uh, getting someone uh, bumped up in the queue because that's probably exactly the worst thing that could possibly happen. Whether or not it be a politician or a public figure or a, a business leader to be able to manipulate the system would probably be the very worst thing. But, but you know... What? Uh, Patty, I'm not trying to manipulate the system. No, no, I'm not this saying is, you this, are. This, 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 is, this is going on with my sister 19 months, every day of her life, in racks of pain. And I mean racks of pain. They've had her on morphine. She's taken Tylenol with the morphine. She, she don't know which way to turn to take the pain away. And just, I, just want, I, I just want to say this one thing. If the doctors and the surgeons were in that kind of pain... They would do something about it, but she—they're not suffering with the pain that she's in, so they don't care. And and I'm getting a cold. I'm getting a cold vibe back from our healthcare. 
uh, the compassion is no longer in our healthcare, I'm, and I'm sorry to say it, and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to see. And I think it's time, it's time for the government to get off their ass and do something to help these people. It's, it's ridiculous what's going on in our health care. These are people. These are people that are in pain constantly, every hour on the hour. Time to do something to help these people. What is being done to help her manage pain while she's waiting for her surgery? Anything? They got around the state. They got around morphine. They got around morphine, and the morphine is not touching the pain. The more that's how much pain she's in. It's not even. It's it's not doing nothing for the for the pain. She took Tylenol with the morphine, thinking that that would help her, and that's not doing anything to help her pain. And 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 she's every day she's getting up, hoping that that call is going to come through, that her surgery is going to happen, and. What I don't understand, Patty, these doctors know this situation. They're not that busy. They would know what they did to her. They told her they were going to call her back. You know what they did? They went on vacation and never even took the time to call her back about her surgery. I mean, now, Patty, that's ridiculous. If I was a doctor and I was going on holidays, I would at least have the decency to say to that person, look, I'm going on holidays, and when I get back, I'll do what I can to help you. And and, and they got these receptionists and uh, with, uh, answering these phone calls, and it's just like talking to a wall. It's like they're immune to pain. They're immune to it. But it's certainly not for me to... Okay, I'll give you the last thought. Go ahead, Marie. No, but Patty, I, if anybody is out there in your audience that's listening today, please do something to change what's going on in our health care because it's utterly ridiculous. I don't believe people are that busy today that they can't pick up a phone and let a person know that she in pain 24 hours a day that what what is, is a hit for them. I think it's ridiculous, and I think I think the healthcare should hang their head in shame to do that to people. And then that's and, and my heart is broken today, knowing what my sister is going through. And I, I I'm doing this today for someone out there to hear what I got to say and turn this 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 whatever is going on in our healthcare around. It's ridiculous. I wish you and your sister will say hello to her for me. And this is a big matter that impacts so many people in the province, and the stories are heart-wrenching. Uh, thank you for the call, Marie. You take good care of yourself. Thank you, Patty. And I, I just I just pray to God there's someone out there that's going to turn her situation around today and give her the help that she needs. Thank you, Patty. God bless you. You're welcome. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, just quick. And you know... Again, I think this stands to be true is even when you get a chance to speak with somebody, regardless of what we're talking about, but in this case, healthcare, sometimes, oftentimes, it might not be what you want to hear, but to know that you haven't been forgotten about, to know that you're not being ignored, sometimes it won't alleviate her back pain, but might give her just that glimmer of hope that the surgery is coming and here's Here's what's happening and, you know, you feel like you're a bit more in the loop and engaged with the system. It's a long time to wait, especially when you're dealing with chronic day in and day out pain. Someone just sent me a picture 
of the product that Harry referred to, the Trips Ahoy cookies. You know, the rules regarding packaging, whether it be for smokables and or edibles, are very nondescript. You know, they're, they're just not. They have the uh, recommended labels with the chemical compound therein and that type of stuff. But things that are the contraband product that are not for sale in the licensed retail outlets for cannabis products, they don't look like this. They're not shiny packaging. They don't have the clever little uh, takeaway on Chips Ahoy now is Trips Ahoy. And you don't have the sponsored by Snoop Dogg or Snoop Dogg approved or any of that kind of stuff or Willie Nelson approved. But in the contraband world, they do. This package, you know, I know it's not Chips Ahoy, but it is the same color blue package. And the picture of the cookie looks very much like the Chips Ahoy cookie. And it does say cannabis infused, but how many times have you just kind of very quickly in and out of the pantry, in and out of the fridge? And so, anyway, I don't even know why that's necessary. You know, they probably spend more on packaging. And just don't get me started on the packaging. Even just to buy a gram of cannabis requires, what, 18 grams of plastic packaging? It's all completely ridiculous. But in the contraband world, do people really make their decisions based on the packaging? Or is it the amount of THC or CBD or whatever else they're looking for? It just all seems a bit weird. Unnecessarily costly, too. Uh, Pamela, we appreciate your patience. You're next up right after the newscast. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. All right, line number two. Pamela, you're on the air. Uh, Good morning. Can you hear me now? I can hear you okay. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just thinking about history. Um, um, The hydrogen bomb. You know, and mm-hmm. for game, hydrogen was used to make the hydrogen bomb, and also uh, the Hindenburg, the uh, German Zeppelin, that uh, only a spark it took to bring that down. Mm-hmm. And they never used those uh, Hindenburg or those Zeppelins again after that because they're so dangerous with the hydrogen being so inflammable and, you know, whatever. Yeah, they use helium, yeah. Well, they use he- I thought they used the hydrogen back then. Right, okay, so... Well, they probably use helium now, whatever, yeah. Okay, and the other thing I mentioned uh, was the um, hydrogen. If the terrorists get a hold of hydrogen, I mean, they can make their own bomb. No, hydrogen is the second most prominent element in the in the world. I mean, yeah. it's, it's everywhere. But how do they make the hydrogen bomb then? It's a thermonuclear weapon. Yeah, I know, but they, they used hydrogen. Yeah, through nuclear fission. As yeah. opposed to, like, electrolysis is not, is not like that at all. I, look, there's certainly an issue with uh, storage and protection and explosive parameters that need to be broached with the ammonia plant in particular. I don't think the hydrogen, hydrogen is a problem. The ammonia would be a bigger problem. I mean, ammonia is deadly. Well, so, they manufacture fertilizer, and you know how bad fertilizer can be explosive. Right. There's a process to turn fertilizer into an explosive material. Absolutely right. But there's two or three fission stages in the creation of a thermonuclear weapon that in this case, yes, hydrogen was part of it. And people obviously do refer to it as the H-bomb. But you're also talking about plutonium and uranium and other issues and the scientific know-all, wherewithal to create such a weapon. So just the appearance or presence of hydrogen is not an issue on that front. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so 
worried about also Iran. They're planning whatever, what they're planning to do, you know? Yeah, but of course, it's access to those particular minerals, plutonium, uranium, for, for two, and the nuclear understanding and the scientific background to be able to create anything of any danger to weaponize something like hydrogen, which is pretty innocuous stuff. I mean, it really truly is, and it's the, most, it's the second most prominent element on the planet. And it flows, uh, flows uh, freely in space, and it, I mean, it's absolutely everywhere. So the worries that you have, I think we can temper those by knowing that there's a handful of people in the world with the, know, the wherewithal, the capacity, the scientific background, and the access to those chemicals for that to be a concern that we have. I think the bigger concern with those plants is the ammonia. But anyway, like if you had a, a little small ammonia leak at a hockey rink, and ammonia is used for making ice, if a little tiny exposure can really make you quite ill, so I think that would make a bigger problem personally. So, Kathy, in all the, um, the, you mentioned Germany going to have their trains fueled with hydrogen. Right. Does that have ammonia in it also? No, ammonia is used for the transportation. Transportation, so it won't, won't explode on you. Yeah, no, it, it's just the way that they do it to be, it, it's safe and it's understood. That's what the ammonia contribution is to this particular issue. And someone just sent an email, which I think is, a, I guess it's tongue-in-cheek, is that gasoline makes for a pretty good bomb, too. And yeah. it does, and that's pretty rarely available. You know, the Molotov cocktail has been a pretty proven uh, explosive device that you can make just with your empty lamb's bottle in a rag. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't worry too much about that hydrogen issue regarding the proposals in this province. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's not part of the conversation. That I don't think we should worry about that. Hopefully you don't. Yeah. The other thing is I heat my house with, with home heating oil. Right. And uh, that won't, to make that burn, you need electrical current. Well, and you know, also need pretty intense heat. It's not anywhere near as flammable as other petrochemicals, whether it be white gas or propane or gasoline. I mean, these are really highly combustible, but the home heating fuel and the additives therein make it certainly far less than. Yeah, well, I, that's why the, um, I'm threading the thought that they're going to jack up the price of home heating oil when so many people in the States and Canada or Newfoundland heat their homes with home heating oil. And uh, I, th I think they should keep the home heating oil on, on the market in indefinitely, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I think we're going to find ourselves in a place where this winter there's going to be an additional, going to have to be an additional means test for home heating fuel, maybe the reintroduction of some home heating rebates, because... You know, the problem is real. It was certainly a big conversation had on this program repeatedly last winter, of course, in the summer months, if we don't have near the types of concerns uh, because it's been so warm, number one. But come this winter, when all of a sudden we turn from these warm summer days into the chillier fall days and into the frigid winter days, this conversation will be back on the front burner. You can guarantee it. Uh, appreciate the time this morning, Pamela. Hope you're doing well. Oh, fine, but I just met a lot of people do prefer um, hot water radiation um, heat. Oh, yeah. Yeah there's, heat. yeah, there's something to the heat, the, the kind of heat that's generated. Absolutely right. I have big, big cast iron radiators, and that's the best heat you can get. They're beautiful. I had to haul one out of my house when we did a renovation, but boy, oh, boy, it's, you know, <laughs> they're beautiful to look at, and they do provide that really pleasant type of heat in the home, no doubt about it. Heat, and, but to replace them now costs thousands. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, it's, it's the world's gone nuts as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Hard to argue with that one. Okay, take care. You too, Pamela. All the best. Bye-bye. Oh. Uh, will I do what here? I'm going to switch it up a bit. Go to Pat Fran from Artistic Fraud. Good morning, Pat. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Great today. Thanks. How about you? 
Oh, fantastic. It's it's opening day for our new production, so I thought I'd ring in and, and uh, give your listeners a heads up about it. Sure. It's I Forgive You. Is this all about me? Did I do something? <laughs> no, no. Uh, uh, Patty, this is a... Uh, it's it's a beautiful original story about Scott Jones, uh, and I don't know if you recognize that name, but Scott was in the news a number of years back. He's uh, a choir conductor from Nova Scotia who is a survivor of a hate crime attack. He got attacked, uh, stabbed, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Okay. And, and what makes his story so unique is his uncommonly early path to forgiveness. So uh, mere months after he was assaulted and received a spinal cord injury in that assault and was paralyzed and and now lives using a wheelchair, uh, he forgave his assailant, his attacker, uh, publicly and powerfully. And we've been working with Scott for the last four years to create a play about his story on his journey uh, through the path of forgiveness. And, uh, and it opens tonight at the Arts and Culture Center. It's absolutely beautiful, and I hope your your listeners uh, take it in with us. Well, I mean, artistic fraud, well understood. The contribution of some just unbelievable people. I, I would imagine Scott is intimately involved with this production, is he? Yes. So Scott is the co-writer of the piece. With, and, with and, Robert? And with Robert. Uh, it's a verbatim play, which means that uh, the script, the story that they're using, was uh, kind of teased out over hours and hours and hours of interviews with Scott. So both Scott and Robert are the co-writers of the piece. And I mentioned that Scott is a choir conductor. Well, he's on stage in this play about his life conducting a children's choir as two actors play out this narrative. It is funny. It is beautiful. It is unflinchingly honest. And uh, it's, it's on for three nights, so, you know, don't miss it. I mean, I, I see some of the names that get to run through artistic fraud. Yourself, I mean, Robert Chafe, just extraordinary. Uh, Jillian Kylie repeatedly has worked with you and, of course, had a year, multi-year placement with the National Arts Centre itself, and Jillian is just extraordinary. Um, I know Don, her partner, does a lot of sound work with you guys. Is Jillian directing this one, by chance? Jillian is directing it, and it's quite a dream team of Newfoundland artists. So around Jillian and Robert and Scott, we also have choreographer Christopher House. Oh, terrific. Um, who is uh, who spent uh, much of his career in Toronto with the Toronto Dance Theatre, but one of the most influential dance choreographers in the country. Uh, we also have Kelly Walsh working with us, so uh, who your listeners will know from the Shallow Youth Chorus sure. and her many other accolades, of course. So, it's um, yeah, it's on tonight, uh, Friday and Saturday. Um, showtime is eight o'clock. We also have ASL interpreters joining us on for the performance on Saturday. So, uh, for uh, for members of the the deaf and hard of hearing community, there will be that additional. Uh, uh, accessibility and interpretation for that performance. It sounds lovely, and I guess it's because of my years on Out of the Fog. The box office telephone number at the Arts and Culture Center is 729-3900. Well done. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, so obviously this sounds like a beautiful story, albeit from a horrific event where he was attacked on stage, paralyzed from the waist down. And to be part of it, writing this particular play and to be on stage with it is certainly going to be memorable for those in attendance. And I would imagine everyone working on the production oh for sure for sure i mean um just being around this artist and and the team for the last month as we've been working it uh it's certainly given me a new perspective on on the things i take for granted in my life and um yeah it's it's 
it's just so special. So uh, there, I, I've made my pitch. I, I, I won't drag it out any longer. Thank you for having us on the show, and I hope to see uh, you and all your listeners at the theater this weekend. We appreciate the time this morning, Pat. Uh, congratulations and break a leg. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. You Pat Fran from Artistic Fraud. That's quite a story. I did recall that once you started to talk about uh, Scott Jones. Anyway, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Whatever we're talking about after this, well, that's up to you. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go. Line number one. Russ, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. First time caller. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. I'm My wife's from Hans Harbor, and uh, we just bought a house last year and moved down from Yellowknife. But what I wanted to uh, talk to you about was uh, you guys were talking about remedia- remediation on the West Coast there and stuff yesterday. Okay. And uh, uh, I, you probably know about Giant Mine and Yellowknife has enough arsenic and barrels in the mine to kill the whole population of the world a couple times over. And uh, the problem, and you're paying for it, by the way, <laughs> the federal government is paying for it because companies, mining companies had a history of uh, going up north, uh, doing what they do, and getting out, be it by bankruptcy or whatever. And uh, they leave the mess for the government to to clean up. Well, it's only in the recent past that there's been any real attention to proper remediation, whether it be at oil sites and whatnot. And there's plenty in Alberta that have not been remediated properly uh, and in British Columbia and mine sites. I mean, asbestos and otherwise. We're still actually producing and and exporting asbestos, for God's sake, in this country. Only one mine, apparently, in Mm -hmm. Quebec. But we've just recently figured out how to force people to remediate. And we're still not doing a very good job at it. Well, and uh, what they've been doing up north, like I always say, don't uh, uh, like don't start from scratch. Go look around the country and see what other people are doing. But what they're doing up north, uh, I'm, I was in minerals and oil and gas up there for the federal government and the territorial government. But uh, as part of the remediation, they have uh, a fee up front for reclamation. But you know, they'll name an amount that the, the companies would have to pay, but it's never enough. I mean, you look at Giant Mine, you're paying $100 million or whatever it is. I can't remember what it was, $100 million, I think, a year, some crazy some crazy thing like that. It's, it's a lot of money, but it's never enough. And those mining companies, they, they still leave, although there are really severe uh, environmental assessments that are going on, but they never have enough money for reclamation. And it's hard for companies, mining companies, to just put that up front. So... Yeah, the upfront is the is not necessarily the concern. It's the outcome and the aftermath of when they've exhausted whatever it is they were mining for or producing, whether it be in an oil field or otherwise. But, I mean, even when we talk about what goes on in the oil business, remediation on land, in particular in the oil sands, they're happy to show you all these reinvigorated landscapes with green grass and trees beginning to grow back and stuff. But to pretend that we don't have a problem underneath all of those pretty sites is just ridiculous and naive. Yeah, and like I say, that that's, that money that they get for reclamation, everybody sees a high number, but really it's just a little, you know, into the bucket. Sure, yep. <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, I, I, that's all I wanted to say about that is just that they, they need to put more money down, especially if you're dealing with a country. You know, you should, for remediation, if you're dealing with Germany, and I know... If they want to want us to produce it, they should help by putting money down 
so that me and you aren't paying it for the rest of our lives until we can find out what to do with the mess that's there, like giant mine. Yeah, I don't know what remediation comes with this type of proposal, to be honest with you. It certainly doesn't mm-hmm. spark the visions of oil fields and mines and yeah. the like in yeah. my mind. But, of course, we are still talking about hydrogen in this country it's in its infancy Mm -hmm. and so we're not really sure because when people hear about mining proposals and oil and gas proposals we've been there we've seen that we understand what happens Mm -hmm. in the beginning in construction jobs and production and then the aftermath which we're about to experience here in the oil industry at some point they will have exhausted hibernia and we're going to have to figure out what comes next you know i really like what the guy yesterday said uh you know, let's get it right and let's do this and that. I mean, it's not like people are trying to do it wrong, but let's really, really research this thing. You know, I think it would be a good idea. But that said, I got another little question for you, and it's for your other buddy there, but I I don't know when you guys are on the air. Um, In uh, Hans Harbor, we're renovating the house, and we've got – no fence on the front but we wanted to put cedars in and i wanted to know what type of cedars uh, i could grow you know that type of thing well i don't think you have a big problem with cedars uh, anywhere in this province for them to grow whether it be the dwarf all through the the full size full bore cedar i got a couple growing in my backyard they grow like wildfire Okay, and uh, now I don't want them to grow that tall. You have to keep trimming them, or the dwarf ones, they stay small? Yeah, the dwarf one is a, is a decent option if you don't want it to be too big, but, you know, it's no sweat to keep a cedar trimmed and manage the heights. Um, every yeah. now and then, like, it really does help when you wrap them up in the burlap for the winter just to keep them growing in the proper direction as opposed to the stray branch sprouting directly out so it becomes unsightly and unseemly. So the cedars are pretty easy to manage. When you say uh, wrapping, you're talking about the the base of a wrapping and cedar. I don't understand that. Say that again. I don't understand what you mean, wrap them in burlap. Just the base part before you bury it? or No, 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 for the winter. Because, like, for instance, where I live and the winter storms, you can just say goodbye to some of those things oh, like a cedar. Yeah. It just gets ripped apart and all the branches start to spread down and the weight of the snow and the ice on it just takes away from the, the beautiful shape of a, ce- of a cedar if you want to take care of it. So that's okay. what I do. I wrap them up to try to protect them in the wintertime. And it actually helps okay. them grow, you know, with the tips of the branches still growing straight up or as close to straight up as they can, given the fullness of the cedar. But, yeah, that's yeah. why I wrap them. That's why most people wrap their bushes, I think. Yeah, because there's time, like, we're we're here full-time right now, but I have to go to Penticton, B.C. once in a while to do my share with my mom, you know, spend time with her and that. And she's not sick, but, I mean, I, I'm leaving, then I'm leaving it to the element. So I was a little worried about what to do. So that's a good idea. I'll do that. Fair enough. I appreciate the time as a first-time caller, Ross. Thanks a lot. Yeah, well, call again. I really like your show. I I think it's really interesting. You get and you you're do, you're a, a wise man. You know a lot of stuff. I've been listening for about a year and a half. So I I don't know what I know, but when I don't know it, hopefully people can help fill me in so we can yeah. illuminate the listener. That's what you're doing, but okay. Thanks, Ross. Thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, lots of different variety in the queue, which is terrific, and hopefully you're one of those callers. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Well, David Amber is a anchor for sports and also a host and reporter. Cut his professional teeth with ESPN, worked at TSN. He's covered a bunch of World Series, Stanley Cup Finals, NBA Finals, reported for 
from two Olympic Games, but maybe, just maybe, the pinnacle of his professional career took place this past Monday right here in the city of St. John's. And David Amber joins us live on line number five. Good morning, David. You're on the air. <laughs> I like I like the intro. Hey, Patty, good meeting you this week, and it, it was a lot of fun celebrating the uh, Cup Championship in your fine city. Uh, and we were really pleased that you were here. But of course, covering all of these major events—Olympics, World Series, and Stanley Cup and NBA Finals—it never gets old. Watching the winners, the individuals, and the teams celebrate, just like you had the opportunity to do with Young Newhook this past Monday. Yeah, you know what I what I was really most pleased about was not just seeing the smile on Alex's face because we all know all the the time he's put in to to become a champion and the sacrifices moving to Ontario, moving to BC, going down to play NCAA hockey and in uh boston i mean he you know and did doing all of this as a young man uh, there's sacrifices involved there but i was most pleased to see his family his father his mother you know his sister abby you know anyone who's played sports at a high level uh, knows it's not just one person who has to to make those sacrifices and put in those time the time and have that level of discipline and and effort. It's really a whole family and in some cases a whole community that has to back someone to get them to the highest level. And it was really just nice to see uh, the celebration uh, for the family and the whole community because you know I always had heard. You know, Newfoundland and St. John's were, were hockey-mad places. But until you go there and you see just how important it was to the community, you don't really get a great understanding of it. So, you know, for me, that was just so – it was so nice to see the celebration. It was perfect day, perfect weather. Um, you know, it was just the whole series of events was, was so well-coordinated. You know, a real shout-out should go to, to, to Nick Vinicom, yeah. who helped coordinate the whole event from top to finish, kept everything on time, kept, you know, the well-oiled machine moving, because there was a lot of moving parts there, as you know, Patty, between the helicopter ride in Signal Hill and, and you know, the the ball ho- the surprise ball hockey game and the family dinner and, and the party after. Um, it, it was really great. So, you know, top to bottom, it, it was fun to see. And, and you mentioned, you know, Alex and the celebration there, but I was just so more most pleased to see his family and the community get a chance to really embrace such a special day as well. And it wasn't like it was just Alex who was represented being the cup champion. It was like the province won the cup. Uh, it was truly remarkable. Yeah. It was bigger than Ben, better than I thought it could be. And Vinicom will forever be now be known as the project manager. Um, for <laughs> Alex and his family, I think this, uh, as lifelong friends of them, that speaks to who they are. You know, they could have very easily, like some other players might do, have small, intimate gatherings of friends and family, spend their 24 hours with the cup. You know, McKinnon going to the, uh, the uh, long-term care facility to meet the vets and these things happen all the time but for Alex and family they spent every waking moment with that cup in town to share it with everybody and that's just what they're like and I think people really appreciate it they saw the same thing you did yeah, you know what the thing, Patty. I think it speaks to the community. Uh, you know, I, I, listen. I, I grew up in Toronto. I, I live in Toronto, and it's it's very different. I, I mean, I love Toronto. Don't get me wrong, but but it's big. Uh, it's impersonal in many respects. Um, you know, there's a lot of moving parts every single day. Uh, very transient city. Whereas I found in St. John's, people are born there, they live there, they love it, they don't leave very often, they want to stay there, uh, they love their community. And we saw that firsthand. 
you know, at the cup celebration. And you're right, it really spoke to that. They wanted to be in, as inclusive as, in, as possible, to have as many people come up, be able to celebrate the moment, touch the cup, take a picture with the cup. You know, some people got a chance to drink from the cup. Uh, it really encapsulates what that community is all about. And, you know, and this was sort of that fabric that was able to bring everyone together. So it was really beautiful to see. One of the events that was not publicly disclosed was the ball hockey game. So we had uh, Alex and Abby are both former Avalon Celtics minor hockey players. That's my association as well, as well as his father's. And we had a ball hockey game. Tell us what you saw when we went to the DF Barnes Arena. The beauty of this was the players on the two party buses had no idea where we were going or what we were doing. What happened? It, it was a lot of fun, actually, Patty. As as we saw, like it was the surprise part. And Nick Nick was was adamant. Don't don't say a word. Don't tell them. The kids don't want to know. We were we're gonna surprise them. And they they took uh, you know uh, essentially about forty plus kids. Uh, I say kids, but you know Alex and his best buddies, um, who he's played hockey with, who he went to high school with, who he grew up with. And they broke into two teams. One was the mainland team, you know, guys who aren't from the Rock, and the rest were uh, the locals from St. John's, the, the kids who played uh, throughout the years with Alex and grew up with Alex. And they broke them into two teams. And your your listeners will be happy to hear that uh, Team Newfoundland won 3 nothing in the ball hockey game, and then they trotted out the cup, and they celebrated as if they'd won the Stanley Cup. And the whole scene was, it was fun. They had a great time. There might have been a few beverages consumed as well i can tell you the level of hockey wasn't exceptional but that's what actually made it even even more fun for everyone so it was it was a great way to celebrate and i understand they're going to put a video together and send it off to the 40 participants and that'll be sort of a keepsake to to remember this special occasion and and alex would want it uh, that way just something that they can look back and laugh at with their buddies having this special moment that was a big surprise and seth hyde did the play-by-play and introduced the players and yeah. he's got a big career ahead of him all of you sports bro- sports broadcasters should be looking over your shoulder for seth coming behind yeah. you i would i don't imagine matt boldy's agent would have appreciated the conditions they played in that day but uh, it was a <laughs> tremendous amount of fun and and the fun continued throughout the day. Of course, we were all at O'Reilly's for the the ultimate uh, party, and Alex did his very best on stage. And once again, to include all, uh, David, we're really pleased that between you and Nick, you were able to work it out, you know, get a local producer, Peter Walsh, and be part of the celebrations. It was great to meet you. Any final reflections on your time here in St. John's? Well, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, it was it was something on the bucket list to, to get out to Newfoundland and St. John's, and it had been long overdue. It's a, it's a part of Canada I had never been able to get to. Um, the thing that sticks out the most that I'll take away, first of all, is the incredible hospitality. And you mentioned Peter Walsh and our camera person, Cecil. Uh, they did a fantastic job, uh, worked really hard to make sure that we were able to commemorate and really show the, the series of events to our audience on Sportsnet, which was really important to us. But what stands out most to me is just the amount of pride in that community. The amount of people that came up to me, introduced themselves, said, it's your first time in Newfoundland. How are you liking it? I hope everything is going well. You know, have you had fish and chips yet? Have you, you know, has this happened yet? Have you seen this? Have you seen that? And I think it was just such a great level of pride. And, and it's understandable, you know, uh, how tight-knit the community is and that the people are so um, excited to share you know, it really is one of the more beautiful parts of the country, um, you know, with visitors like myself. And I think that's why tourism is such a big thing in, in Newfoundland, right? Like it's one of the biggest industries there is there because 
I think when people get there, they're embraced. And, you know, I've seen, uh, I went and saw here in Toronto, uh, come from, uh, come from away. Uh, am I saying that right? You are. Yeah. 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 And it was, I remember I took my, my wife and kids, we all went and we thought it was just a spectacular, uh, uh, you know, production to really highlight what St. John's and Newfoundland's all about. And, um, you know, it really just, it was great to have that firsthand experience, Patty, honestly, to be there. Um, I called my wife and said, yeah, we got to come back here and, and, you know, come see it again. And maybe the highlight to me, I'll be honest with you, was to go up to Signal Hill. Alex was up there with the cup. And to see a place in Canada that's that's so important, it has such historical significance and so beautiful as well. So, um, honestly, it was a fantastic, it was a quick 48 hours, but it was a fantastic 48 hours in your fine province. And uh, I look forward to coming back. And I want to say thank you to everyone who was uh, kind enough to, to welcome me in and to say hello and to share stories about the great uh, time uh, They've had watching hockey on our network with me, so I appreciate that. We look forward to having you back, David. Say hello to Emma for me. <laughs> <laughs> I will, absolutely. You say hi to Andrea. We'll talk soon. Okay, thanks, David. Appreciate it. Take, Take care. care. It's David Amber. Sportsnet uh, host and anchor, and of course was here to cover <laughs> the celebrations and the shenanigans of the Cup events here in town. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Al. You're on the air. Hi, Al. Uh, good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, thank you for having us over. Uh, uh, I didn't want to inconvenience you, but I thought that this might be a general interest topic. That uh, what it was a very pleasant group in the states. I ordered some electronics about three weeks ago now, and uh, they certainly did deliver. And uh, I have uh, had conversation with them a couple times since, wondering when will my package arrive. And, boy, they were the nicest kind, i got to say. But, uh, unfortunately, the policy was to have, uh, I don't know what company it would be, one of the people, you know, that sort of like uh, UPS and Pure Later, all this crowd, that they'll deliver it to your door, which is great. But, uh, unfortunately, in this case, what they did, <laughs> apparently, they did deliver and uh, showed up at the door, knock, 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 and just left it there and went on. Unfortunately, yeah. end result of this was nobody answered the door because there was nobody there, and I never saw it. So a week later, I find out, oh, we did deliver it a week ago, so I'll never see it. Unfortunately, I just asked the RNC to make a report on it because I thought, well, you're never going to find it. I'm sure we don't have the resources to hunt down a, a little item that you can put in your pocket and walk away. But on the other side, I thought, yeah, but people should be aware of this policy. I don't really personally think it's all that responsible because, for example, what happened could happen to anybody. They just knock on the door and leave it there and walk away. I mean, Really? You know, I, I didn't really see that as a very responsible way to do business. I don't like it either. And what they refer to that now uh, is that people are porch pirates. They scan neighborhoods. They follow some of these delivery vehicles. They know they're dropping off items that might be fairly expensive. And so that's what yeah. they do. They wait for the courier to walk away. Then the next thing you know, they're on your porch. They've scooped up your goods and off they go. It's certainly and the least secure. Right on the main road. It's nothing to grab it. It's sure. like middle of the day, right on the road. It's not like they got to sneak into your backyard or something. But uh, I don't know. I'm not upset with the company. Um, I 
I have emailed and said, I'll try again, guys, but if and only if, how about you send it to me registered mail or something? Because <laughs> otherwise, you know, I don't want to repeat performance. I can't afford to throw 300 bucks out every day. And, uh, yeah, poor sparks. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's what and, they call them. It's a real cottage industry. The Some of the people that I talk to about these issues, like, for instance, in my neighborhood, if you know you got a package coming, I don't hesitate to, you know, call over to the neighbor and say, look, if you happen to see this particular courier go up the road, because I know it's a $500 item, if you see them drop it off, would you mind bringing it over to your place? You know, putting some safeguards in there to try to protect our hard-earned money, because these people, they know full well what where the couriers are going and some of the goods they might have on board, and they've got it figured out. And consequently, me and you and others have faced this awful outcome of the bloody porch pirate uh, doing away with my package. Uh, look, and I think you said you didn't want to... Uh, bother us or something this is an important call i appreciate your time you know and uh, i thought it would be a matter of concern to other people who may be choosing to do the same uh i did uh, order some uh from a canadian company uh about five years ago and uh they did the same they just showed up and left it on the porch and disappeared but in this case it wasn't a problem because of where i lived uh I didn't live in the area I am now, and uh, you can leave there for a month and nobody touch it. It's out in the country. Everybody knew everybody. Nobody touch it. But I'm in a city sort of thing, and uh, things are different. There's a lot of crime, and you can't do that around here. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought people should be aware, depending on your situation, so to speak, uh, where you live. and you Like the neighbors here, nobody touched that. I know it was nothing to do with my neighbors. None of my neighbors would even think of it. Sure. But uh, I guess, you know, there's people that will. Hey, bye. A by, and isn't that the truth? Al, I'm glad you made time for the program. Maybe this is uh, a helpful tidbit for someone to say, you know what? I'm going to ask the neighbor across the street for I'm expecting a package. If they can collect it for me, I'll drop you over a pint or a, an apple yeah, pie. Yeah, I did that, actually. Like you would. Neighbors, all neighbors to let them know. But unfortunately, I guess nobody happened to be looking at that moment. But I appreciate your time. I love listening to your show every morning, and you have a great day now. Same to you, Al. All the best. God bless. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Charlie's there to talk about green hydrogen. Bill wants to talk about the implications regarding drinking water, and I have some additional information on water regarding this project, which we'll share after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let us go. Line number four. Charlie, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Great show again this morning. Thank you, sir. Patty, just a gardening tip there before I get to the green hydrogen. Uh, I sow my carrots around uh, the middle of July. Uh, because of the carrot fly. It's, it's a fly that gets uh, lays eggs and then it goes into the carrot and spoils it. And one major benefit when you're in a small garden and you need extra space, if you're growing beets and onions, they're uh, usually being uh, uh, harvested now. So you would take the, uh, the uh, thinning out your carrots. All you have to do then is, instead of throwing away those transplants, put them in where the beets and the onions were, and you get uh, uh, double your carrots almost. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. Okay, and in reference to the Russ's uh, comments, uh, Ross, Ross, I can't remember, uh, Ross, I think, about cedar. So <laughs> this guy is setting me straight via email. This recommendation is coming from Ross Travers. So if you're anywhere where it's especially windy and or salt spray, you're better off to grow white spruce versus the cedar that's for you russ and that comes from a fellow who knows that's one of the uh 
Top gardener is one of the experts in the field here. That's Ross Travers here in and around town. Okay, where are we going, Charlie? Okay. Tuesday I called and I was preempted by all those big shots, but that was no problem. Uh, it was a bad time to call on, on the green hydrogen deal. I was calling basically to to uh, maybe lambaste a uh, little bit environmentalist uh, because I'm thinking that uh, if you're going to have production of, of, of a clean fuel, you're going to have some degradation of the environment. That's inevitable. Today, after listening to the guy about the water and doing a little bit of research, I've got a little bit of a different slant on things. The water is not going to be a problem. Just let me throw this out there. Uh, I didn't know where the water was coming from, and someone said, we should read the deal. Look, I read enough in the run of a day. I'll try to keep up as best I can. So this is coming from a mine pond reserve that Abbott Tibby used. So apparently there's enough in this reservoir to fuel, even if they do, triple the project itself. So it might not be the issue that some thought it was. I appreciate people sending me the information, even if you're going to land base me when you're trying to share the info. I'll take it. Well, here's, 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 uh, they had a conference uh, back in October to, uh, last fall uh, looking at uh, the feedstock water and the produ- production of hydrogen. Here's one little, one, one little uh, uh, tidbit that might uh, put some perspective on how much is used. If you're uh, flying from uh, London to New York, operating on a 100% green hydrogen, it would require 550,000 liters of water for the, for, for the production of that fuel. In other words, uh, they said as much daily water consumption as 1,800 uh, U.S. citizens. So I thought that was a little bit high, and uh, I would say this. Uh, somebody mentioned putting the project uh, out to sea. Now, it was talked about at that conference that when you do electrolysis, you're, you're producing a, excess uh, heat, and this would help with uh, salt water, with, with uh, uh, the desalinization of salt water. But if, I, if I'm reading this correctly, uh, this had better be a large reservoir of water because uh, that, that figure I just gave you is, uh, is uh, uh, sort of uh, get you... Yeah, I don't think it's directly analogous to uh, how they're going to utilize the pro- whether it be in production and or utilization in Germany. Here's some of the numbers. Okay. For the first couple of years, the facility will ramp up to 100% capacity, and at 50% capacity, it only uses 20% of the water Abitibi did. Abitibi used 8.5 million cubic meters of water annually. The plan used for hydrogen production initially is 1.7 million, and that could be doubled. Abitibi operated for over 20 years and at that reservoir, and it never had an issue with low capacity. That's the most recent information gleaned from the, the uh, EA proposal that the company put forward. Okay. That's, that's, that's news to me. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, the question that you raised this morning, you, you, you wondered why this wasn't being done in Scandinavian countries that certainly have lots of wind and lots of water, as far as I, I know from my geography. And you wonder why, uh, being so close to Germany and the market, the European market, why these areas would not be looked upon as opposed to having to ship it across the Atlantic. And I'm wondering if uh, 
the the water issue might be uh, a factor there. But anyway. I don't know, you know, why they turn here. And then there's also, I think part of the story that has not gotten a lot of attention, but maybe should, is that uh, Chancellor Schultz was also pressed about Canada and natural gas. We have not produced, I think we have the 15th largest reserves in the world, produce five, we're number five of production of natural gas. Unfortunately for us, if we're talking about GDP and contribution therein, we sell it to the United States at cut rate dollars. You know, there's one big LNG offloading facility being built in Kitimat. There's some 18 proposals that have happened over the last number of years. There's one more set to break ground. But maybe, just maybe, that was an opportunity lost. I know there's an issue regarding all the other climate change initiatives and policies and parameters, but if natural gas is going to be part of the transition and we have the 15th largest find, uh, 15th largest capacity on the planet itself, then maybe, just maybe, we should also consider this. If we're going to be contributing in the world of hydrogen for transition, natural gas seems to be another contributing factor, not only for greening the world, but for contributing maybe nine figures per month to the GDP of the country. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's uh, that's my comment on that one. And uh, I, I, I started off being 100% in favor and, and, and thinking that this, this is great. And I know I've got a little bit of a worm of doubt, but uh, I'll wait to hear more uh, information like you gave today. Yeah, and info, look, when people, when I don't have the information, I tip my tongue or in my head or at my fingertips, when people send it along, that can only be helpful to me. So please do. When I get something wrong, correct me. If you can provide some additional information that we can uh, pass on to the listener, please do that. I appreciate that more than people realize. Okay. Okay, Patty, all the best. You too, Charlie. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about drinking water, and then we're going to be speaking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's go to line six. Bill, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. Uh, Interesting program you have about our... uh our new energy supply about the windmills here on the Port of Port Peninsula. Mm-hmm. I was concerned about the water. Where is the water coming from to, to supply those windmills? Or does it make its own water or what? No, the windmills really don't have much to do with the water itself. That's the generation of wind in combination with water for the electrolysis process to create the hydrogen. The water is going to come from a well-understood uh, reservoir that's been used many, many times, notably by Abitibi. So the water at this moment in time looks like they can triple in scale and still use no water beyond what was always used in an industrial uh, application by and from this reservoir. Yeah, I understand that, and that's a good point, I must say. But here on the Port of Port Peninsula, the water wasn't used by Abitibi. There, there are ponds, but none of them have been used by Abitibi. So where, where would they get the, this adequate supply of water? There's ponds here, yes, there's lots of ponds. Well, would it come from the ponds then? Would it be pumped from the ponds? Well, it's pumped from this one industrial, already used for an industrial application reservoir. That's what's written in it. Uh, I can't picture it with my mind's eye. I've never stood along the shore of it, but that's that's what's in front of me. Yeah, well, I guess there there are ponds here, like... uh, Of course. You know, and it's like the the lower coal mines. You know, they use one of the ponds for their supply, right? Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. And... uh, 
so, you know, an earlier caller of yours uh, early this morning said that there's going to be a lot of water contamination, drinking water contamination from the... Yeah, I'm not 100% sure of what he was getting at there. I think he was just saying that once the water's used and we've separated the hydrogen from the oxygen, then what are we left with? And yeah. it's a fair point. I don't think the... Well, the way I heard it anyway, isn't that there would be other sources of water polluted or contaminated by this process, which I don't think is true, nor do I think it happens, but... That's where, if people know the process, we're actively trying to find somebody who understands the industry, not as a business perspective, but from the scientific and the environmental perspective, exactly what happens. Talk us through it from step one right through the when it gets loaded onto a ship with the ammonia transportation uh, application. So get us right through the scientific and the environmental business model. We can take it from a different angle. Yeah, well, I'm, I was concerned about the expulsion of this water after the, after the uh, hydrogen was, was was made, right? Whatever uh, is left over, I assume, will be just discharged into the into the ocean. To be honest, but I don't think there's much to be left over. But that's something I'm going to let someone who actually knows what they're talking about <laughs> provide for factual information versus any opining or guessing on my behalf. So we're actively trying to find the right voice for that, someone who can make time for the program, and hopefully that'll be of interest to many of the listeners because the concern about water and where it ends up and the environmental concerns are are clear, and yeah. we can you know talk about. Uh, federal or provincial monies and the business model and the viability that's sort of a different issue for me anyway so i'm going to try to separate the two out and get all we can on the table because at this moment details are hard to come by so we're going to see if we can fill in the blanks based on this process that's been used elsewhere whether it be in europe or other parts of canada representatives from the irvings who are upping their hydrogen game as well so we'll see what we can get on the show to try to fill in the blanks yeah well regardless uh, this water that gets expelled, ex- expulsion, I guess, uh, the word, uh, is still contaminated, I guess, to some degree, right? But it's like the lower cold mine, their water gets expelled and it goes into the ocean, right? Ne- right next to the mine. So, but I, I don't know if it's as contaminated as the, as the hydrogen water. But nevertheless, there's a lot of water on the Port of Port Peninsula that's already contaminated and people are using it. You know. They got high levels of assets, THM and HAA assets, especially in the Lourdes area, in the West Bay area, mm-hmm. right? Where 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 there will be a few uh, a few windmills, I'm sure. But the, the the leaders in those communities are are the ones that are pushing this contaminated high high acidic water, HAA and THM acid water in in our homes, and they're pushing it further. They're pushing it, trying to push it out in West Bay, where there's two to three times higher levels of acid than Health Canada recommends. But nevertheless, that's contaminated water. But, you know, the point is, it's contaminated water. And, and, and they're saying now, because hydrogen is going to be made, oh, we're going to get drinking water contaminated. Well, it's contaminated already. But the people are not aware of it. The, the, the leaders in the community, the lures in West Bay, are not making the public and the people in the in the, re, the residents in the area aware of the high levels of assets, according to Health Canada, two to three times higher than they recommend. And here's Dr. Janice Fitzgerald, you know, uh, warning warning the public in in the newspapers, you know, back in the 2018 November and December of 2018, coming out and saying that these high asset levels. Are, are dangerous and be aware of it. 
they cause they cause reproductive disorders, uh, childbirth uh, defects and stillbirths, miscarriages, uh, colon, bladder cancer. This has all been reported since 2018. But yet our residents, our, our leaders, our so-called leaders, you can't call them leaders if they're trying to push contaminated water to our residents in West Bay and Lourdes. But who's Lourdes doing that? Who's, who's pushing contaminated water at residents? The mayor, the mayor of Lourdes, the leader, the... the the, the chair of our West Bay local service districts. They're pushing, trying to get this water. A dozen times they've been refused because the water has not improved by by uh, by the water resources portal in Newfoundland and Labrador. You know, these are the ones that are pushing it to the, to the residents, even though I had the facts right here from the water resources portal in Newfoundland and Labrador. High acid level, THMs, HAAs, uh, 180 would be the milligrams that are acceptable. Here they are in 2020. Uh, they accept the, the, the published water resources assets in it uh, in in the winter in the in the winter summer of 2018. 243, 297, 240 compared to 80, the acceptable levels. And these re- these leaders in our community. Uh, the mayor and and uh, and the THM the, and the uh, the chair of our LSD committee, they're trying to get projects. Oh, so we're going to use the tax base, the the gas tax. Going to going to going to get get grants to to uh, to uh, construct the water line all the way throughout uh, West Bay and maybe even Piccadilly area. But yet they're, they're not informing the residents of the high levels of assets that are in this water. And that, that that warnings are coming from Janice Fitzgerald. Uh, in in twenty in twenty eighteen, uh, November seventeenth, twenty eighteen, uh, the towns of St. Paul's, Lures, Pasadena, Macaiver, Steadybrook, Rocky Harbor, Gillums, Coxcove, Meadows have high such such high acid levels that Health Canada doesn't recommend. Now, how many more communities on our west coast are, are contaminated uh, have contaminated water? And yet, complaining about, oh, this hydrogen is going to contaminate our drinking water. I don't think it will. So, I agree with you. If, I'm, if I understand the process, doesn't all public water systems have to be repeatedly tested and approved before there's boil order advisories or stay away, don't drink, don't use it to wash your clothes, don't use it to uh, boil your potatoes? I mean, isn't that a standard ongoing process? Like, even if I have a well, I have to get it tested uh, fairly often for it to be approved for possible yeah. drinking water. Isn't it the same for public water? Because, I mean, there's right. about 200 boil water advisories in place, so there must be some ongoing monitoring. But nobody, yes, the water resource portal monitors the water, our drinking water here, every three months, and reports go to the town of Lourdes and West Bay. Okay. Bay, but the town, the town and, and, and uh, Cape St. George and so on. All right, but... Understood. They're not being reported to the residents of Lourdes and West Bay, so they, they are being deceived that the water is good, and, and they're trying to bring up projects with 90-10 community service, like uh, 90% for the government, 10% the community pays. You're, you're talking cost sharing, yeah. Oh, yes. 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 Understood. Yeah. Okay. You're going to pay big time for contaminated water? You know, 10% of, 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 of 5.6 in 2017 was... was uh, was uh, advertised and suggested and, and surveyed that it would cost 4.7 million to put the water from Lures to West Bay, uh, all the way to West Bay. All right, 10% of that is 4.6 million, 
at 10% is 460,000. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, go come ahead 5 years. How much do you think that five, that that 4.6 million now is going to be to put that water line through? You're talking maybe double, 7, 8 million dollars. Now you 10%, you take 10% for the community to pay. You're talking seven, eight hundred thousand dollars for about sixty or seventy residents to pay. How are they going to pay for that? You know, mostly senior citizens in the community, the West Bay. So this is what they're pushing, and they're not informing the public of it. We'll follow up on it. Uh, we'll have to leave it there for today, but I appreciate your time and your contribution this morning, Bill. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Well, let's follow up with my concern. What's about the water being contaminated? I understand. Contaminated here on the peninsula, and I'm sure that the other nine communities I listed here, you know. High, high levels of acid, THM and HAA acids, but nobody's concerned about that. Well, we are now. It's not being brought up right now, but the, the deal... We are now. You know. Anyway, thank you, Patty, and your, your, your program is very informative. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Okay, take care. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break, but the one looming question, are we alone? We'll hear what Dr. Svetlana Barkanova has to say about that right after this. Welcome back to the program. Well, this evening on the Grenfell campus at 6 p.m. in Rome AS 2026, a presentation by our next guest, Dr. Svetlana Barkanova, Life in Our Universe, Are We Alone? Join us online, number one, is Dr. Barkanova. Good morning. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to have you on the program. Of course, this is a question as old as time and memorial, but now with you know, moving from the Hubble telescope to the James Webb, some of the initial images we've seen have sparked more conversation about are we alone? Where do we start in your presentation this evening, Dr. Barkanova? Well, today at 6, as you just mentioned, uh, and as you just mentioned, I will start by describing a James Webb Space Telescope new capabilities in so many different areas of science and astronomy and physics, but one of them is the search for exoplanets. If you think back to those five images released by James Webb Space Telescope team on July 12th, one of those images, well, it wasn't actually a photograph, it was a graph, graph showing presence of water in the atmosphere of one of exoplanets. So they are are looking into a brand new set of technological opportunities now. They're just getting started. People have long wondered, are we alone? But the conversation has been extended way beyond that, isn't it? I mean, even if you look at American fighter pilots, we're living some of their experiences with unidentified flying objects. I think we call them something different these days. But that has sparked renewed interest in it. But now it's not just about whether or not we are alone, which is always a fun conversation, is whether or not the presence of H2O has means that there's other habitable planets out there. Even if we find that to be true, what do we do with that information? That's a really good question. Um, let me take that one step of a time. Okay. Uh, there are definitely habitable planets out there. Uh, whatever they're inhabitable, that's a, diff- a different question. But there are trillions of planets in our home galaxy, Milky Way. Most of the stars, and we have billions of stars here in our galaxy, do have planets. Some of those planets are Earth-like, which is about the same size of density. Many of them are in habitable zones of their stars, so that means they're close enough to have liquid water. And, well, nobody knows that precisely, 
but from studying the origin of life on our own home planet, it looks like that given the right conditions, having water, some energy, the right elements, the life will be born. So maybe uh, those trillions of trillions of habitable planets do have, well, at least bacteria on them. We don't know yet, but again, we are just getting started. Some of these questions are just popping into my mind as we uh, talk, uh, have this conversation. Some of this, for me, seems to be driven by the fact that we're oblivious to just how much damage we've done to our own planet. Now we're also looking far afield into outer space for another place to find a habitable reasonable environment to live in. Is this a reflection of what we've done to our own planet to even have these types of conversations? Because it once was, you know, what's going on at uh, Area 61? Are there Martians out there? Now we're talking about, do we need somewhere else to go? Well, I'm not a social scientist. I'm a okay. physicist. Right. <laughs> and, and yes, there are habitable planets out there, but you have to keep in mind the distances. Uh, we are talking hundreds of light years which is trillions of kilometers we cannot travel those distances so i guess it brings me back to maybe a further elaboration on what we actually do with this information how can it be pragmatically or practically applied to science on earth uh to science on earth Maybe I'm not the most pragmatic person to ask. I just want to know. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. So the curiosity is, of course, you know, always part of post-secondary academia, especially when we talk about the, some of the sciences, including your discipline inside of physics. There's also going to be the opportunity to tour the Grenfell Observatory after the talk. Can you describe, paint a picture of the observatory for our listeners? If you've never been, absolutely do take this chance to visit. We have public events about once a month. The next one is coming up in September. Uh, you will see the observatory the moment you arrive on campus. It's a big six-meter dome on the top of our arts and science building. And inside it, we have one of the largest campus-based telescopes in Canada. And what makes it so unique is that it is accessible to the public. Most observatories do not allow public just to come in there, but we do. And I take a great pride in the science outreach program we are offering here in Cornerbrook, especially one aspect of that when we trying really hard to reach out to underrepresented youth such as women, indigenous youth, and rural students. So we are working very hard on that. We need... Um, as you know, science is developing quickly, whatever in practical direction or not, and we need people. Another thing you need to keep in mind is that training in physics, again, whatever pragmatic or not, will give you a whole bunch of skills in whatever you want to do, including renewable energy, environmental issues, and so on. You may start your training looking for exo exoplanets, but then you can move on to move uh, on to work on solar energy, for example. Mm -hmm. People do that. I've not uh, very recently had an opportunity to be at the historic source of the prime meridian of the world, the Christopher Wren, Robert Hoke, uh, architects behind the Royal Observatory in London, the Royal Museums at Greenwich, which was quite the experience. Have you been there by chance? 
Uh, Greenwich, yes, of course. Yeah, of course you have. A stupid question. I guess put it in line with uh, the other not great questions I posed to you this morning, Dr. Barkanova. So what do people need to do if they'd like to be in attendance tonight? Do they need to pre-register or anything of the sort or simply show up at 6 p.m. this evening? Exactly. Simply show up. Uh, show up. Everyone is welcome. And I'm very, very excited about tonight. I appreciate making time for the program. Thank you very much, doctor. Thank you. Thank you, Betty. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. As Dr. Svetlana Barkanova, she's a professor of physics at Mons Grenfell campus. And this evening at 6 p.m. in Rome, let me get the room back up here, in Rome, AS2026, you can take in her presentation titled, Life in Our Universe, Are We Alone? And have you seen the images from the James Webb Space Telescope? Truly remarkable stuff. It really is. And they're so crystal clear, you know, which I think begs a couple of probably more silly questions, is if we can have that shot into deep space, light years away, and yet we can't get clear, non-grainy CCTV footage? Let's check in on Twitter. Wherever you see up online, you can follow us there. Jason says, an advanced alien civilization 95 million light years away from Earth are likely seeing dinosaurs if they aim their telescope at us. Funny. And someone says, is that Anna Delvey? No, that's Dr. Svetlana Barkanova. Not very pleasant question there. Let's take a uh, break for the newscast. Let me check the email here quickly. So, uh, from a high school chemistry geek being told quite clearly that there is no discharge uh, after the atom separations in the process of electrolysis to create green hydrogen. Makes sense, I mean, uh, obviously, but of course, not only was I not a chemistry geek, is what we're going to try to do is expand it beyond high school and bring someone on the program, hopefully in the very near future. It's not just about discharge water, it's about everything scientifically, environmentally regarding what this looks like, what it feels like, what are the short-term, medium, and long-term implications of this in this province. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, speaking with you, real quick. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's do it. Line number two, Wayne, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you? Number one, Patty, uh, the uh, discussion, I guess, about uh, production and export of hydrogen from the province is a pretty interesting uh, topic, and... Uh, a lot of people thinking of and I had a couple of questions number one it was kind of unclear to me whether the process was going to use ocean salt water or fresh water do you have any clarity on that it's not salt water absolutely fresh water then yep okay how does that uh, the export of hydrogen made from our fresh water here, how does that or does it conflict with the national policy of no no bulk export of water? No water will be exported. That's that's <laughs> no, the trick here. We're splitting hairs, aren't we? No, not really. I mean, if we were exporting, remember when Roger Grimes was under siege because he was talking about exporting fresh potable drinking water? At The reality is the water will not make it anywhere past our shores, consequently does not contravene that act. So it's really just a flaw in the legislation or, or the national policy because we're destroying fresh water in bulk to export its components. 
through electrolysis. And so this is sent along from a fellow from the, this is a clip from the U.S. Energy Information Administration, the EIA. Electrolysis uses electricity to produce hydrogen. Electrolysis is a process that splits hydrogen from water using electric current. Electrolysis is commonly used to demonstrate chemical reactions in hydrogen production, even in high school classes. That, 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 that goes on and on and on. But the, the water being used apparently will be primarily from an industrial application reservoir that's been used in the past and has the water capacity to service even if this World Energy GH2 proposal is tripled, as is indicated, is a possibility in their own provision to the provincial government. So there you go. Not using freshwater sources that are being used for drinking water in one community or another in the region. That's how I see it. That's what I, how I read it. And that's some of the questions we'll get direct clarification from the province and the proponent as soon as possible but that's how it's read that's how it reads yeah it, it gives me a sense that what we're doing here really is twisting and turning around the so-called national policy in order to accomplish this industrial complex development on the west coast now i'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing but i'm just curious as to how it uh, dovetail with the national policy of no export of or no bulk export of water. Well, it's already been squashed, uh, if I can read these issues properly. On the west coast of Canada, there's a large corporation that has a lot of control of public waterways that uses it simply to fill up their plastic water bottles and sell it back to us, not only in this country, but elsewhere. So fresh water is being exported as we speak. Fresh water is being treated as a, com a commodity like soybeans on stock market uh, big boards. So this is already happening. And how it gets curtailed or how you deal with some of the advancements in technology and change in legislation to meet whatever it be, technological advances and or the appearance of green hydrogen products or pro projects in this country. I suppose everything has to work hand in glove, but it's funny how business and technology moves faster than the legislators. Yes, uh, well, that's, that shouldn't come as any great surprise. It to does anyone. not to me. Uh, Patty, one other question. The project that's proposed for the Argentia area, is that also using... They're proposing to use fresh water? I don't think any proposal that I've seen includes desalination of seawater to be used in whatever process. Not that I've seen. So, But I don't think we have as much detail about the proposal in Argentia as we do with even the one in Port of Port, even though that's sort of light on details, as is the joint intent declaration or whatever they call it, the MOU between Canada and Germany. It's lofty on uh, timelines and ambitious timelines. It's certainly lofty on economic outcomes, but it's it's short on detail, which is why people are asking questions, because that's exactly what we do, or we try to do anyway. Yeah, well, I hope the uh, maybe Memorial can involve themselves in this and uh, organize a number of public discussions, uh, a series of public discussions at the, uh, the center in there, because there's certainly a, a great lack of information amongst the public and these whole massive projects which they're likely going to turn out to be 
and we've just got a built-in bit of self-defense when it comes to these types of projects, whether we call them large-scale or mega or what have you, because some have worked and some have not. And the ones that have not really seep into our psyche and get our backs up a little bit when we talk about it. You know, creation of jobs is good. Expand the tax base is good. Environmental implications, maybe not so much. Uh, government monies, ugh, at this moment, doesn't look like provincial dollars, but that's not to say there won't be federal dollars because they have money associated with these alternative forms of energy and projects like this. So I guess... Where you are depends on your level of concern. Like even on Muskrat Falls, if you're living in and around or around the Grand River, Churchill River, the environment was a much bigger deal than what your my kilowatt hour bill is going to look like here in St. John's. So all these things really depend on where you are and who you are. Uh, Wayne, anything else you'd like to offer this morning before I take another call? No, Patty, I'll, I'll make the airways available for somebody else here. <laughs> but, uh, I'm going to keep my ear tuned to the discussion, and I look forward to... Uh, Maybe Memorial getting itself involved in this and uh, providing some instruction or information exchange to the public at their center in there. So thanks for time, Patty, and have a good one. Happy to do it, Wayne. Thanks a lot. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, we're going to see what information we can get, including from a retired engineer. Join us on line number six. His name is Walter Mercer. Good morning, Walter. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Great, sir. How are you doing? Uh, Good. Uh, I'm a retired engineer, and I've had a little bit of experience uh, with hydrogen, but uh, I I, kind of hope by me calling in would uh, uh, form as a a catalyst to other engineers that have had much more experience that that would chime in as well. the, the process I understand you will be using is uh, electrolysis, and uh, that's something you can do in your garage. I used to make hydrogen in uh, my garage with a uh, canister of uh, water, and you put two anodes in it and uh, pass a, a current through it, and the gas that comes off the top is known as Brown's gas, and that's oxygen and hydrogen, but separate. And you can take that and uh, separate it out as hydrogen or, or just oxygen. And uh, I worked on it as a... Uh, added the fuel for uh, motor vehicles. We used to uh, um, make it under the hood. The uh, power from the alternator went into the uh, uh, canister. The gas that came off was uh, jetted down to the carburetor, and uh, we found it did work. However, it takes more horsepower to generate the hydrogen than you get from the hydrogen. And that's an important thing you have to understand when you make it by artificial means, that uh, if you buy the hydro to make it, you're going to be spending more than you will be getting out of the uh, hydrogen. So they came up with a system known as green hydrogen. And what that is, is rather than hook it up to a battery, you hook it up to a wind turbine. Now, when the wind turbine is turning, the wind is blowing, it's making hydrogen. When it stops, it stops, but it's free. And that's the basic premise behind all of this. That's what they call it green energy, because it doesn't really cost anything to make it. It's coming from the wind turbine itself. Now, there are other implications. That's a very simple way to go about it. My work involved uh, making the hydrogen in uh, my garage, making the prototype and trying to make it work and all this kind of thing. But when we did the dyno tests on the engine, we found out that the gas generated wasn't as powerful as the energy it took to make 
it. But that's an important thing when you're dealing with that type of thing. With this, you're getting it for absolutely nothing once you've paid the capital costs of buying the wind turbines and everything else that goes along with it. So uh, I hope that's maybe shed a little bit of light on this. Uh, it, it certainly has. You know, so some of this is about the, the chemical reaction, but some of the, if I heard you properly, is some of this cost of production is much more business model and their own viability than it is concerns that folks might have about where the water comes from, how it's used, and how it's discharged, which simply comes out in the form of a gas, right? It would appear that way. Okay. Uh, once you pass the current through it, the water dissipates, and it, the water actually converts into gas, so it disappears. It goes away. Uh, you aren't really contaminating anything on, unless you uh, knowingly take something dirty and uh, pour it down the drain. But uh, generally, the uh, water that's in the container, and it can be fresh or salt, the uh, people had not wanted to use fresh because they figured this would be doing away with the fresh water uh, reserves of the world, so they experimented using salt water. Now, you can use salt water, but it has a price, and that price is the salt water uh, tends to eat away the anodes very quickly, so you have to keep replacing the anodes, although you can use salt water with it. It just costs more. And, of course, when we're talking about costs, that would be obviously the number one concern for Mr. Risley, not to say that that's a bad thing in business. But, you know, I think that therein lies the rub with some of the the cost issues here is just how far away we are from Germany. So beyond the process itself, mm-hmm. all the transportation associated with it. So people are talking about emissions and green versus, you know, gray using natural gas and more emissions. But it's also all the thousands of kilometers before it leaves Stephenville and gets to Berlin. So it, it's all quite extraordinary to me. Well, uh, it is a problem to ship hydrogen. Uh, the best way to explain it, uh, I've heard a lot of talk about ammonia, and uh, I've never heard of ammonia working into the process with making oxygen. However, what I suspect they're talking about with the ammonia is uh, if you take a canister of hydrogen and you reduce the temperature to minus, I think it's 350 degrees Fahrenheit, really super cold, it'll turn it into a liquid. And then if you bring it up to room temperature, the pressure in there is about five to 10,000 PSI. So I suspect when they're speaking of ammonia, they're speaking of the, the means to cool it down so they can liquefy it. Now, I don't know that for sure. Uh, I'm, I'm just suspecting that from what I'm, I'm hearing. But uh, I don't know of any process that uses a ammonia. And, and there is a cost with, uh, with that that's associated with it. But that's more of a transportation cost than it is a processing cost. Uh, I understand and hear it the same way you do uh, regarding liquefaction and cooling, but I also understand that it has it allows for the highest storage density as well, yes. which, yes. of course, would it, be cost-related. It does. Once it liquefies, that's the smallest volume you can get. That is the smallest volume, I believe, that you can get from the hydrogen. Now, I, I haven't had any experience with liquefying it. I've just taken it uh, off the process and put it into an engine directly. Now, uh, there is a, a, a company in B.C. called Ballard that makes uh, hydrogen fuel cells, and uh, that's uh, it, it's, it's actually being used right now from uh, my understanding, or it was 15 years ago when I was in the business, and that's uh, they use it to power buses in California, and they had some in B.C., and you take hydrogen and you put it into a fuel cell. Well, the, treat the fuel cell as a black box. It's the um, Ballard fuel cell. You treat it as a black box. There's two inputs and two outputs. The two inputs are hydrogen and air. 
and out, the two outputs are water and electricity. And you use the electricity to power the wheels on the vehicle. Uh, but uh, that's the next step on. That's how you use hydrogen. Uh, you guys are referring to making it right now and, sure. uh, and uh, transmitting it. You know, uh, transportation on ground, looking at things like that. But the shipping industry seems to be putting down big bets on ammonia. Ammonia engines and fuel cells. Given some of the incentives, financial incentives from governments, given some of the new, I'll call it legislation, come from the International Maritime Organization regarding uh, decreasing their emissions, all the incentives therein, and the cost for transportation periods. So they're betting big on ammonia. It is by far the, cl- uh, you mean hydrogen, not ammonia. Well, whether it be ammonia insofar as the liquefying, cooling, and density for shipping of hydrogen and or for the propulsion itself, diesel fuel alternatives. The hydrogen itself is the cleanest fuel you can get. Sure. Uh, The only thing that comes out of the exhaust pipe is uh, water vapor, nothing else, just water vapor, no smell, no nothing. it It is almost the perfect fuel. However, there's a downside to it. Moving it along takes pressure. Um, we tried working with it in an internal combustion car engine, and it has to be pressurized. And in order to do that, uh, the seals have to be perfect. Uh, you can't allow any leakage. You can't allow anything like that. It just doesn't work well in the uh, day-to-day world of starting and stopping motors. However, with a gas turbine, that's different. You can uh, uh, design the metering system so it goes into the combustors of the turbine, and, and, and it works great. So there's still a lot of technical little bugs to be worked out, but that's just a matter of time. Engineers will get onto that and they'll solve it. really appreciate your input and your perspective and your professional uh, experience this morning, Walter. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I was just hoping that this could serve as a, a catalyst because there's uh, many men out there, many men and women that are uh, much more experienced in this field that can certainly put their two cents in. And uh, it's a very interesting field, hydrogen. And many engineers that I know have often wondered, why the hell haven't you done something with this sooner? And it just hasn't happened. And it's so nice to see it happening now. Great to have you on the show. And hopefully the, the impetus is now felt by other engineers, whether they're working or retired, to chime in on this one. Really appreciate your time, Walter. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Final break of the morning. When we come back, we're going to talk about 3PS Cod and the mythical 10,000-ton threshold. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the the executive director at CNL. That's Ryan Cleary. Hi, Ryan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. You and your listeners. Thanks for taking the call. Happy to do it. Before we get too far, before we run out of uh, time here, so the 10,000-ton threshold in 3PS, it was for the inshore harvesters to catch before the offshore draggers could get a piece of it. That was the understanding. Apparently, it's not the case. Talk us through a little bit of historical context on what's actually happening. So um, you're right. For the information of your listeners, I know you know this, Patty, but there are three cod stocks adjacent to Newfoundland. You've got northern cod off Labrador and eastern Newfoundland. Uh, That's under a moratorium, even though there's a small-scale fishery, 13,000 tons. You've got a cod stock, uh, cod fishery in the Gulf that uh, was shut down in July. Ottawa put a moratorium uh, on that. And then you have uh, the cod stock off the south coast in fishing zone 3PS. Now, the way it works for two of those stocks that are under moratorium, northern cod, the offshore draggers are not allowed at that cod until the quota reaches over 115,000 tons. The way it works for for cod in the Gulf is that there's also a threshold. It's 9,000 tons. Uh, And, again, that that stock's under moratorium. But until the the total allowable catch goes over 9,000 tons, the, uh, the offshore, the draggers, they're not allowed at that cod. 
the the inshore fleet in 3PS off the south coast, they thought they had a 10,000-ton threshold. The reason why they thought that, Patty, was because the south coast fishery closed down in 93. When it reopened in 97 with a 10,000-ton quota, the offshore didn't, uh, didn't fish it. So the inshore fleet for 20 years believed that there, there was a threshold. It was 10,000 tons, up to 10,000 tons. The offshore draggers were not allowed to fish the St. Pierre Bank. But in 2017, when uh, then-minister Dominic LeBlanc, when he cut the quota below 10,000 tons, he still allowed the offshore draggers to fish that quota. Now, this year, Patty, you've got the 3PS cod quota, which is 1,300 tons. It's a shadow of what it once was. There is no threshold, and the offshore uh, factory freezer trawlers are still permitted to drag that stock. What this shows is the inconsistency of federal policy, two stocks under moratorium, no offshore draggers allowed, uh, a third stock on its knees in terms of the quota and the scientific uh, advice, and the offshore draggers are still allowed to drag that stock. We're saying that this is an issue. I went to the federal minister back in February, and I asked her to to block, uh, on behalf of enterprise owners on the South Coast, to to, to um, uh, I asked her to, um, uh, to prevent the offshore draggers to block them from fishing, to stop them from fishing, to, to institute that ten thousand ton threshold. She came back, Patty, and she said, "No, that's not happen happening." And the only reason there are thresholds, this is what she said, is because. Um, um, uh, is because of management decisions, not science. Now, that's something we fundamentally disagree with. What we what CNL says is that the fishing uh, of cod and pre-spawning and, and uh, pre-spawning and spawning congregations on places like the St. Pierre Bank, that kind of fishing is killing the stock. It's why the, the stock has failed to heal. So uh, this time every year, I think is a good time to come out and educate the public on, on DFO and, and some of the policies there that are that make zero sense, that have zero consistency, and you have a whole intra fleet in 3PS off the south coast coast that feels that it, it was just lied to in terms of a threshold that did not materialize. Yeah, I mean, the difference between 3PS and the other two zones is based on kind of nothing as far as I can tell. So DFO says they're still uh, able to fish their 12.2% share of the over 1,300-ton Canadian 3PS quota for this year, despite it being different in the other two zones. You know, when we're we're talking about, well, we think this is the way, well, we hope this is the way, well, we're told this is the way, and it turns out not to be true, no wonder there's so many black marks and questions and frustrated harvesters in the inshore sector, simply because of the time, and I wish we had more because I want to talk about herring as well. But I do appreciate your time this morning, Ryan. We'll talk again soon. I appreciate it, Patty. Thank take, you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. We are indeed out of time, but that was an interesting show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.